0: I love it. Well, if I could encourage you, um, if, if you're new here or haven't been here for the last few weeks, we're in the, on, in the middle of the book of Jonah. It's a prophetic book in the Old Testament, and I want to encourage you to take your Bible and turn there. This is the third message. We're in chapter 2, looking at the whole of chapter 2. And, um, man, I forgot to do this at first service, too. I forgot to pray for our time in the word. So if, uh, as you're turning... Um, let's just pause and ask the Holy Spirit to help us. Spirit of God, we ask um, in these, these few moments that we have to gather around your word together, a word that has been preserved for almost 27 centuries, that has still as much to say with power than it did when it first was printed. And we ask that you, Spirit of the living God, would take and just breathe this word into our hearts with fresh power humble us before it allow us the freedom the grace to um, be honest with our own hearts as the light of your word shines a light into um, our own motivations our own thought life as it relates to how we think about you and we think about others Empower me, O oh God, to use the gift that you've given to me to teach this in an accurate, passionate, and articulate way. And I, I just ask that you would magnify yourself as a, as, as a result of it in our midst. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, one of the things that we had to do, um, I had to do during our graduate, my graduate program in, in, in Chicago, was to do an in- internship, which means I was to shadow another pastor. Um, for about a year, and I got to preach and to teach, and then he would give me feedback on how well or how not well I did. And um, I had the, the privilege of having a, a, a professor that actually befriended me. He was one of my preaching professors, and he said, Dan, I, I, I got this church in the northern part of, of urban Chicago, and it's a turnaround church. And for those of you who might not know what a turnaround church is, it's a church that, that is on the edge of, of dying. And um, to go into that situation is very hard work, and to try and turn it around so that it actually becomes a thriving, um, outreaching kind of uh, gospel church again. So he asked me to, to join him, and I said, well, that sounds great. I needed to do an internship, and so I did. It was a very interesting experience for me and my wife. Um, we were attending a very large church, and we went down to this little church where, this, this little turnaround church, and the demographic was interesting. It was primarily older white people who had migrated there from the south. And it was in a neighborhood that was becoming increasingly Hispanic. So, so you gotta, that's kind of the picture. Small, elderly, white church in the middle of a growing Hispanic neighborhood. And at one point, um, a Hispanic pastor came to this small white church and asked if the church would consider loaning the building, that is loaning the facilities to them maybe once or twice a week to have worship services, you know, at a time in which nothing else was going on. And uh, so the church had a business meeting, the little small white elderly church that largely migrated from the south. And the question was posed to the congregation, should we let this new Spanish-speaking church I meet in our building. I was kind of excited about the prospect, but it was interesting what came out in that business meeting. And words and phrases were said that were, to me, utterly shocking. One sentence or phrase that I'll never forget being said was, um, we really don't want those people quote-unquote, using our church. Now, maybe it's just because I'm a Californian and, you know, everybody's melting around in California or I, or maybe it's just because I've been exposed to the gospel over the years, but it was an enlightening moment, a lightning a moment, rev, a revelatory moment because what it told me was that people can know the gospel, quote-unquote, and not really know the gospel. Like, at some point, we were all those people, strangers and sojourners and aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and yet God saw those people, namely me, and you, and he said, come be part of my family. That just completely didn't register to my way of understanding the gospel. You can know the gospel, quote-unquote, not know the gospel. You can profess to believe the gospel, but not have it possess your heart and your motives and how you see people. And that has been a a perennial temptation and infection that religion has had. In particular, um, Christianity and and Judaism. Um, That one of the temptations that we face as 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 believers, as Christians, is the simple fact that we have been massively blessed. We're called sons and daughters, which means we are in a position of royalty. And it's easy for us to, having experienced that blessing begin to feel a sense of superiority and with it a sense of condescension of those who don't or are not part of our quote-unquote group. The Jewish people struggle with it too. I mean, talk about blessed, the Jewish people. I mean, they had the patriarchs. They, they actually were genetically related to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had been then chosen of all the nations on the earth. They were chosen by God. And not because they were more righteous than anybody else, but they were chosen to be God's precious and prized treasure. To them, they were given not only the covenants, but the promises and the oracles of God. I mean, talk about a a privileged position of being a Jewish person, a part of the nation of Israel. Massively privileged. And there are times in the Old Testament where you see that they feel a sense of entitlement to it. Like somehow that blessing translates into superiority. And attitudes of um, prejudice, uh, self-righteousness began to emerge so that by the time Jesus came onto the scene, it was rampant. But you know what? The Old Testament addressed the issue. In one respect, the whole book of Jonah was written to reveal or uncover um, a spirit of prejudiced self-righteousness that existed in the time. And uh, ironically enough, in the person of a prophet of Yahweh himself. It's, it's meant to draw out our own prejudice and our self-righteous attitudes through his story. Well, if you followed us in chapter one, the is pretty basic. Uh, the Lord... Asked him to take a message to the Ninevites. Those were the despicable people. They were those people. And he, rather than do that, which was something that was deeply offensive to him, he ran the opposite direction. And the whole story of the first chapter is about his descent. First he comes down from Jerusalem, then down into the ship. Then he gets thrown into the water, and then he goes into the belly of a fish. And that's where we left him, in the belly of a fish, uh, in a tomb tomb so to speak. Stripped of all control and in absolute darkness. And in chapter 2, verse 1, we read for the very first time in that confinement he prayed. And let's read this prayer together. I'll read it if you follow along. Verse 1 says, then Jonah prayed. Pagans prayed multiple times in chapter 1. This is the first time the prophet humbles himself to pray to Yahweh. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down. It just keeps going down to the roots of the mountain. That's a pretty poetic word picture. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet, you brought up my life from the pit. The Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, I remembered Yahweh, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Verse 10, and the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out out upon the dry land. That is a beautiful prayer. It is a poetic prayer. It is a biblical prayer. The question um, for anyone who's looking at the book is, why is it there? If you read verse 1 of chapter 2 and write there verse 10, you realize all that middle stuff can be taken out, and the story will read just fine. That then Jonah prayed, and the Lord answered, and the fish vomited him up on the beach. So, so why is this beautiful, poetic prayer inserted into the story? And I believe that the answer to that is to give us insight into the heart of what's going on in this prophet. In fact, the, both times of prayer, chapter 4 and also in chapter 2, I told you that chapters 1 and 2 are parallel to chapters 3 and 4, both have these prayers. Both of them are designed to give us insight into what's going on in the heart of this prophet. Now, on the surface of it, this is a magnificent prayer. You'd want to quote it. Maybe you'd want it framed and put up in your kitchen. But on careful observation and analysis, you realize there's more than meets the eye when it comes to this this prayer. And I believe what we see is that the prophet has not come to a place of true repentance. So to lead us to that conclusion, let me just offer four observations and then leave you with an applicational thought point. Four observations about this prayer that lead us to a point of application. Observation number one, this prayer is packed with scripture. You might say, well, it is scripture. Come on. No, it's packed with other parts of scripture. That is, you have in this prayer of Jonah, a collage of loose quotations of a number of other psalms that he knew. Psalm 18, Psalm 31, Psalm 42, Psalm 103, and Psalm 120. In other words, he's in, he's in the belly of this fish in darkness, and he starts praying scripture itself. Now, it tells us something about him. He has, he's saturated with the Bible. He knows the Bible. He has it memorized. And he begins to pray the scriptures. And you're thinking, that's awesome. It's just like, it is awesome. In one sense, it's commendable. And one of the reasons we should commit verses of Scripture to memory is so that when we do hit times of chaos, when we do hit times of darkness, when we do find ourselves confined and, and alone, that we can hold on to the one thing we know is true. I can hold on to Scripture. I can hold on to the Word of God when all is, all is lost. And that, that, of course, is a great example to us. We'd say, great job, Jonah. However, I think in the spirit of this whole book, and what I'm about to say in observations three and four, it simply serves to heighten his hypocrisy. He knows the Bible. He's not only a prophet, but he's someone who knows the Bible. Two, second observation. He acknowledges in his prayer the triumph of salvation over judgment by way of his own experience. That is, the, the, the form of his prayer actually is, if you compare it to other psalms, is a, is a, it's a psalm of thanksgiving. Out of, you know, my despair, I called to the Lord, and the Lord answered me. And then he goes and talks about his way down and the deliverance back up. We kind of notice that. But both of those are by Yahweh's sovereign hand. He acknowledges that it is the Lord. It's you who took me down? He says, For you, Yahweh, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. Now in biblical vocabulary Larry, he's he's acknowledging in in verse three that he is under he was under the hand of God's wrath and judgment. Many have noticed. Uh, commentators have noticed the similarity between the structure of this prayer and the structure of the flood story of, of Noah in Genesis 6, 7, and 8, where the world is drowned into the deep by a flood. In other words, he's specifically using flood vocabulary to talk about what was happening to him. That is, he was underneath, he was getting a taste of the horror of God's wrath. That's, a, that, that's what he's saying in, in the first part. So he's, he's tasting what it is to fall into the hands of an angry God. That's verse 3. But at the same time, and he's experienced the horror of it, at the same time, he acknowledges that God also offered him amazing grace. That is, you're also the one who brought up my life from the pit, O oh Lord my God. So you have judgment followed by salvation. You have what, 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 what amounts to death followed by life. You have wrath, and then you have this loving kindness and salvation. And he's experienced both, taken down to the depths and then brought up again, the triumph of salvation over judgment, the triumph of life over death, the triumph of love over anger. And uh, it's, 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 it shouldn't be surprising then that Jesus saw in Jonah's story the story of himself. Which is why he quotes, not quotes, that's why he alludes to Jonas's, Jonah's life when he says in the Gospel of Matthew, he says, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish entombed, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In other words, Jesus would face the same wrath. He would be taken deep, figuratively speaking, poetically speaking, deep into the pit um, not for his own rebellion as Jonah was, but for the rebellion of his people. And he would face the full brunt of it. And then God would raise him up and lift him out of the pit in salvation. You see the same triumph of salvation over judgment and love over anger um, in, in the life of Christ. Well, Jonah experienced it firsthand. He acknowledges it's It's good, good theology. Third observation. I meant to just put the third one up, but it's 3 and 4. Try not to read verse 4. Now, now you're going to read 4. Just, just <laughs> forget what I just said. 3. It's interesting that there's something, there's something lacking, something huge. I mean, he was overtly rebelling against Yahweh. And there's no mention of his own sin or his own guilt. There's no sense of repentance. There's no remorse at all. You should see that. And you know, as as much of the psalms as he quotes, there were plenty of psalms of penitence he could have drew from. Psalm 32, David says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover over my iniquities. There's one. Psalm 51, it's like, against you and you only have I sinned. David talking about his affair with Bathsheba. Be merciful to me according to your steadfast love. Blot out my transgressions. This is a psalm of penitence. Or Psalm 130, it's out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Hear my voice. Hear my plea for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquity, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness so that you may be feared. All of those psalms are psalms of confession and penitence. And there's none of that here. Giving us the indication that he really hasn't been rocked to his core. He really hasn't come to the fact that he's guilty. Which is why chapter 3 and 4 tell the story it does. And ends with him angry and arguing with God. He doesn't get the point, even at the end of the book. So why would he get it in chapter 2? And then the fourth observation is, again, careful reading. You look at verses 7, 8, and 9, which I'm about to reread to us. There's this, um, it exudes this kind of, Prejudicial self righteousness in his heart. Verses 7 through 9. Look at where the emphasis lies in terms of action. And let me just uh, say, read it with a particular emphasis. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you and pay my vows. Keep my vows. There is a strong sense of Jonah in this and his sense of kind of piety. Now, I told you that, that people have noticed a similarity between this prayer and Genesis 6, 7, and 8, the flood of Noah. You know, what's interesting in that story of Genesis 6, 7, and 8. Um, the key, the center point of between flood and the waters receding is a simple phrase, and that is the Lord remembered Noah. It's the Lord who's remembering. It's the Lord who's being gracious. It's the Lord who's pushing the waters back. And here, ironically enough, it's exactly the opposite. The turning point is, and I remembered the Lord. You just you, you feel that a little bit. It exudes that sense of piety. He knows the Bible. He knows scripture. He knows that, that mercy triumphs over judgment. And still there's this kind of self-righteousness in his statements. And prejudice. Verse 8. Those, now he's ref- comparing himself to other people. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Now, most commentators, and I'm inclined to agree, believe that he is referring to the sailors of chapter 1, who were pagans, who were at the end of chapter 1. They were worshiping, sacrificing, and making vows to the Lord. And what he's then saying is that those who pay regard to vain idols, they're going to forsake Yahweh. They're going to forsake their vows. They're going to forsake their worship. But me, I, the voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you, and I will keep my vows. See, there's this... He's already comparing himself to the pagans. Now, all of this this gives us the indication that, of all things, a mighty prophet of Yahweh, someone who knew the Scripture, who knows that God's heart is one of compassion that triumphs over his justice, with his own pious words, really does not understand the nature of his own guilt. And you know what? Jonah is far more damnable, far more damnable than the Ninevites he didn't want to go to. And the reason for that is simple. He knows the truth. He is a prophet for crying out loud. He knows the Bible. He has illuminated, has been, it has been illuminated to him what the truth is. And the people who know the truth and refuse to believe the truth are far worse than those who are completely ignorant of the truth. Jesus argues that over and over and over again. It's like, hey, listen, if, 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 if you at Bethsaida and Capernaum had seen the light that, 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 um, that you see and responded, well, then, but you didn't. You're far more guilty than even Sodom and Gomorrah because they were completely ignorant. See, you get the point. He's far more damnable because of his position. His guilt is increased. His guilt is worse. And that's the, the, I, kind of the, the, the punch of this, um, or if you will, the main applicational point uh, that we're supposed to wrestle with in our own approach to God, his blessing, his grace, our position as sons and daughters of being in a place of, of family. That is the failure to grasp our guilt. My own personal depravity and dirtiness will result in a failure to grasp God's grace and the heart of God for sinners. When when we, a failure to grasp that we're deeply broken. In a way that actually humbles you. Not just a verbal speech you say. When you say, yeah, I'm a sinner. It's like, no. like I know I'm a dirty person. I know what I've done. A person who who grasps that, they get grace. They get it. And not only that, but then they get the heart of God. And the social ramifications are that they want to see God save sinners like them. The failure to grasp one's own personal guilt like Jonah, results in a failure to grasp the enormity of God's grace, and thus the very heart of God. You can't love God truly if you don't know about his grace. And you can't really know about his grace unless one grasps his own, your own, my own guilt. Do you remember what Jesus told? He had a conversation with a Pharisee. And in the context, it was over a meal, and uh, this is Luke, I believe, comes out of it. So it's like he's having a meal. There's a Pharisee there, and this woman comes in who's a known harlot, a sinner. You know the story. And she is weeping, tears, and she is she's crying on Jesus' feet, and she begins to wipe his feet with her, with her hair. It's just an amazing um, expression of affection. And the Pharisee is thinking to himself, well, if he was a prophet, he'd know that that, that woman's dirty. He wouldn't have anything to do with her. And Jesus, knowing the heart of this Pharisee who is prejudiced and full of himself, his pious self-righteousness, Jesus says, See, let me ask you a question. Which one loves more, the one who's forgiven much or the one who's forgiven little? little? And the Pharisee gets, the, gets the, 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 the answer right. He says, well, of course, the one who's been forgiven much loves much. The woman knew that she was dirty. She knew her shame. She couldn't even bring herself to look people in the eyes. She's the harlot of the town. She knew her her stuff. Her shame was all all exposed. Everybody knew. She couldn't run away from it. She couldn't hide it. She couldn't bury it. She couldn't cover it over. It was there. What the Pharisee didn't realize is that his own self-righteousness was far more repulsive to God than her open shame. If he he knew that, he'd know that he needed to be forgiven even more and therefore if he had accepted that about himself he would have loved much but he didn't because he was unaware of the magnitude of his own guilt and as a result didn't love much. In order to truly love God one has to know how much his grace and love has forgiven to you, given you to actually make you part of his family and that is a, a humbling thing when that That becomes a reality in in God's people's heart. Jonah's example of how a person can be filled with the scripture, can actually be a position of a prophet, and still have a heart that's as hard as stone, and very prejudiced, and very self-righteous. And at the end, not get God's grace. He doesn't like who God is. You get to the end, that's why he's arguing. He doesn't like the heart of God that wants to pour out grace towards sinners. The reason? Because he doesn't get his own sinfulness. And that brothers and sisters that, that, that has that social ramification too is what it creates when we don 't day by day just grasp you know who we would be apart from grace or who we used to be before Jesus, um, what it 'll produce in our hearts and continues to produce in our hearts because we are in a place of privilege now we 're sons and we 're daughters and, and so forth it 's like it will create two outcomes socially towards those around us we will be both uh, judgmental in spirit and we will lack compassion for their place in life and their brokenness. That's, those are the social um, effects of a heart that does not grasp its own guilt and does not grasp the enormity of God's freeing, saving, merciful grace. As we, we lose that sense of, man, though, that person needs help. That need, they need the grace of God. It will... Uh, it will keep our hearts to be more very specific. It will it'll keep our hearts from feeling compassion towards, and we will be judgmental towards those who are trapped in a lifestyle of homosexuality. No compassion there, because you see them as the other guys. Um, we will have no compassion for those who are oppressed by the legalism of Islam. Because they're the other guys. Uh, We will lack compassion for people around us who are addicted to pornography, alcohol, or drugs. Why? Because they're the other guys. Understand, sin is sin. And the boundary markers have been laid down by the sovereign rulemaker. And they are not to be changed. Not in the second century, not in the 21st century. But, everyone in here is a lawbreaker. It's just different laws we like to break. There's a reason why the scripture repeatedly reminds us of who we used to be and who we would be right now apart from grace. Grace. First three chapters of Romans, you want to see what, what humanity is like apart from grace? Read those three chapters are, de- are devoted to un- unveiling our own sense of depravity. So that it gets to the place where it's like, listen, all have sinned. That's all inclusive. There's not a single exception to that. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone deserves the pit of Jonah. That's it. Under the hand of God's mighty wrath. And, or, you know, everyone, all have turned aside and become altogether unworthy no one does good, not even one. Now, why does the Bible take the, the, the time to remind believers of that? He's just not saying that to outsiders, to those people. It's reminding all of us so that we continue to remember that apart from grace, we're nothing. To remind us again and again and again that we never stand on our own, that we 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 ne- we we have no moral justification to stand on at all. Period. So there. Therefore, there's no basis for judgment of another person because we're all lawbreakers. And when we recognize that and feel that in our souls, then we experience compassion towards Ninevites and those other people. And we come to realize they're really not other people. They're just like us. They just sin in different ways. But thankfully, you know, we have a merciful, a mighty merciful God. One of the striking, and I end with this, one of the striking realities of this book is that despite the pious, prejudiced, self-righteous heart of Jonah, God does not wipe his hand. We see a God who in chapter four is going to actually come to him and question him, like Job. And a, a God who would question is a God who is, even in that moment, showing mercy, a tenacious mercy toward his runaway prophet. That's an amazing picture of Yahweh as shepherd hunting down his wayward sheep. That, and that is how you're supposed to feel. God is good. And to recognize, there's no, there's no room for that self-righteous piety that would cause you in any way, shape, or form to look at other people as those people. They're humans created in the image of God and objects of His love and mercy. Amen. Lord, we, have, you've placed this church here in this town, in the Bay Area, with plenty of problems, plenty of distortions and perversions of marriage and sexuality and um, money and, and every other thing. And it is easy for us in a position of privilege, in a position of grace, to assume that we're entitled to it. And I pray, O oh Lord, that you would um, use Jonah's own negative example to like a torpedo just to sink that ship. Or we want to be ministers in our community and we want to reach people not as power brokers or with a sense of supremacy, but as people who have been saved by grace alone. And so I pray, let this message, let this lesson have its full work in all of our hearts of humbling us and allowing us to kneel before your mighty grace and saying, in Christ, Christ alone, we're saved, period. And in that, we make our boast not in what we have done or will do. Humble us, Father, for the sake of joy. Humble us for the sake of your mission, for the sake of your kingdom. We pray this in his name. Amen.